That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. Well, that's what she said. Welcome to That's What She Said, conversations with interesting people from the world of sports, music, comedy, and more, talking about their lives, careers, successes, and failures. I'm Gia Tolentino, and my dilemma is that I think I might take too much pleasure in work trying to figure out if that's really good and like a dream thing that I should be really grateful for or something that's, you know, rotting my soul from the inside. So most of the time I actually feel the same way, but I've also been working really hard to make sure I give enough time to family and friends, fun, things outside of my job. For me, that balance is super necessary to be happy, even though I do derive a lot of pleasure and a lot of my identity from my work. And that word pleasure that you used too, it could have been random or it could mean something. Because pleasure or feeling good is different from happiness. Things that make us feel good in the moment might not actually make us happy or satisfied overall. So if you think you're not only in love with your work and feel good doing it, but also that you're happy overall, then I'd say you're just one of the lucky ones. If, however, you're getting pleasure from your work and it makes you feel good, but overall you somehow don't feel quite fulfilled or happy, maybe you need to look at the balance you've created. Back off a little work, spend more time connecting in person with friends and family or meditating, sleeping more, listening to music, letting your brain wander and seeing where it goes instead of filling all of your moments, reading and writing, researching, thinking about your next story. Either way, understanding how lucky you are to love your work, which you already do, and reminding yourself to be grateful that you do something you love, which you already do, is super important. So you're off to a great start there. The commission has spoken. My guest this week is Gia Tolentino, staff writer for The New Yorker and the author of the new book, Trick Mirror, Reflections on Self-Delusion. She previously worked as a deputy editor of Jezebel and a contributing editor at The Hairpin. Her writing's also been in The New York Times Magazine, Pitchfork, and elsewhere. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you've probably heard me mention one particular piece of her work, uh, which was called the worst year ever until next year. And that story sort of stuck with me since I first read it. And it made me want to read more of her work and get her to come on the podcast to share her unique view of the world and the internet and today's news and all that other stuff. Talking to her did not disappoint. We chatted about her life growing up in a mega church, the internet's effect on us and the fight not to let it distort us. Plus why it doesn't feel like she has to tie a bow on tough subjects when she writes about them. It's a fascinating conversation. I hope you like it. That's what she said. So I'm so pumped to have Gia on the podcast. I've been reading her work for a long time, and I'm just obsessed with her way of uh, basically explaining how things are without fixing them, which most writers feel sort of want to do. And uh, it somehow is very casually comforting to know that other people out there are thinking the same things and maybe not able to immediately reach for a solution, but are okay just presenting them and talking about them. And that's one of the things I love so much about your writing, Gia. And we're going to get into the piece of yours that I read that sort of blew my mind open and made me start following you regularly. And I talked about it on this podcast a couple different times, actually, when it first came out. But I want to start way back when, so people get an idea of who you are and how you uh, became the person that you are, the writer that you are. Um, and your childhood is fascinating. So uh, yeah. we'll skip the Canada part. You're born in Canada. Your parents are from the Philippines, but you're very young when you moved to Houston, Texas. And mm-hmm. tell me about this balance of being in a small Christian private school, but attending a massive evangelical megachurch. Yeah. So for 12 years, I went to this tiny little school. It was like 80 people per grade. And also, by the way, by the time I graduated, it was two thirds girls, one third guys. So it was just a real, it was a real nightmare for me personally. School dances. Um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. it was like, it was like a real sort of Logan's run situation every time there was a school dance. (laughs) But I, um, but so the the school itself was tiny, but it was within a Southern Baptist megachurch that is in the, it's for, it's arguably the second biggest megachurch in the whole country. Um, And it was, it's just this massive place, you know, we, we had this televangelist pastor and, you know, we had this six story, like on the school's campus. It was, it was basically like a small town contained in itself. And we had you know, 20,000 people would pass through every weekend for services. And it was just, and that was my whole world because I went to, I went to school there. I, you know, my family went to church there on the weekends and yeah, I mean, it was, it was so, it was the kind of thing where, like, I think one indicative example is that I got my first promise ring, like my first true love weight, not going to have sex till marriage ring when I was in third grade. Oh, 
Oh. And I came home and I was like, mom, guess what? I'm pure. And she was oh like, Gina, God. take that off. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. So um, was this a sort of like prosperity gospel kind of place? Yeah. And I think, you know, this was, so I, I don't think I met somebody that wasn't an extremely conservative Christian until I went to college. Honestly, it was such a cloistered bubble. I mean, I was dissatisfied with the political teachings in a lot of ways, starting when I was in middle school. And I think that honestly, growing up reading the Bible all the time is what pushed me really far left in terms of my own politics. But yeah, what we would get taught, this was like Texas during the Bush era. And it was, you know, like everyone's parents worked for Halliburton or Enron. And it was just this environment in which there was this big sort of upswing of post 9-11 wealth and kind of like extractive greed and glory, you know, and it was, and the prosperity gospel, it was very much, it was less an overt thing at my church than it was at Lakewood, Joel Osteen's church, which is the one that people know. Um, You know, he has all those like airport books, like your best yeah, life now. Uh-huh. And he's got that crazy face and, um, and currently advocating and, for yeah. not hiring women just because, you know, they might do something that would cause you to get in trouble. <laughs> exactly. And, and and famously got cyberbullied into opening the church um, during <laughs> yeah. Hurricane Harvey because he right. was refusing to let people in during the hurricane. And yeah, and, and there was just this underlying thing that, you know, if you're comfortable, you're comfortable because God wants you to be comfortable because God has blessed you. You know, if you've, you've got a lot of money, it's a sign of divine favor. And the sort of converse of that was like, you know, if, if God has ordained all of these like white and wealthy people to be extremely you know, comfortable in their lives. And he must have also ordained it that, you know, the minorities in Houston don't have nearly as much money. You know, this, it was just this thing that I found um, the prosperity gospel was the beginning of my separating myself from the church a little bit uh, in high school. And then, uh, and then, you know, increasingly as time went on. Do you happen to follow preachers and sneakers on Instagram? I don't follow it, but I check in on it every now and again. And it's funny. It makes my growing up experience seem almost quaint. Like yeah. it was the pre, the pre sort of Bieber era of you know, the California megachurches. Yeah. Uh, for those, uh, just check it out. It's an, it's an interesting sort of judgment free, although the judgment lies sort of subversively of, um, famous pastors who are always wearing $900 Jordans and $1,100 shirts. And it's the, it's the putting that prosperity gospel into question without actually out for overtly questioning it. Um, okay. So yeah, I mean, yeah, the, you, the tax breaks that these people get are, yeah, yeah, they're not nothing. <laughs> well, I mean, the ones who have multiple jets because, you know, God wanted them to have the jets. It's anyway, we've gotten off track. Well, and, there but, was, you know. yeah, and, actually, <laughs> and on that point, there was something, there was something also about that. There was something about the idea that sort of our real kingdom is in heaven, you know, that like this, this world is just transient and our real, you know, our real life is eternal. That made me so mad, you know, I was like, <laughs> why not live as if this is all we've got so that we can right. be as good as we can to each other right now, you know, and then to the earth, really, like it was sort of this justification for, you know, the earth is ours to plunder kind of. And it, and, and speaking of private jets, that's just what made me think of it. Right. Yeah. So interestingly, though, you talk about how, you know, you're getting older and you're starting to question these aspects of it, but also the principles of religion and sort of the more, I don't know, historical things that you think of versus the new new religion of, you know, helping the poor and helping the hungry. You were drawn to that and you still believe that that actually influenced who you are very much now, even as you're getting away from actual like standard religion. Yeah, I mean, I I would not classify myself as religious at all. I, you know, I even though I'm always like whenever in moments of political crisis, I'm like, should I become a Quaker? You know, <laughs> like should I just go to silent meetings in beautiful places? Um, I yeah, I think it was so clear to me, you know, I, I went to Bible class every single day and it, I just hated most of what I was taught in there in this particular kind of environment, but I really liked reading the Bible itself. Like I really, I was drawn to this basic structure of, you know, you are trying to, you know, you understand your purpose in the world as trying to be good and trying to be a good part of the community. And the whole new Testament was about, about helping the poor and the hungry and the sick. And it was, it seemed really to have these values that I didn't, see in the just everyday texture of the church itself. And, and, and there, as you said, there were all these older traditions. I was always really drawn 
to this certain feeling. And I wrote about it in that one essay in the book of ecstasy, this sort of the sort of feeling that you would get in this dark room with thousands of people and music really loud and light coming in through the stained glass in the windows. And you would just feel like you were disappearing and you were part of something enormous. And you felt that like little flicker of mystery, you know, or this massive influx of it. And, and that seemed to be important to me. You know, there were all these, tra- there's a, there's an ecstatic tradition in every religion and in, and in Christianity, there were a lot of women mystics in the 12th and 13th and 14th century who, you know, believed that through attaining sort of ecstatic states of consciousness, you could achieve union with God. And that sort of idea ended up uh, governing my relationship to music and to drugs and to sex, probably, and a lot of other things. But it's, um, I actually, I found that really like that impulse, that impulse that through these ecstatic states, we learn something important. I still, that is something I learned in church first and just um, have, you know, applied in different arenas. Yeah, you wrote extensively about sort of moving away from the church and into music, deciding, you know, your social patterns and activities and then trying lean, trying different drugs. And when you write about doing ecstasy for the first time, you write, I felt weightless, like I'd come back around to a truth that I had first been taught in church, that anything could happen and a sort of grace that was both within you and outside you would pull you through. So you're expressing this belief and understanding and connection to this religion or the spirituality that you grew up with, but also in a way that's very distinctly different than maybe it was uh, preached to you or the expectations for you. How did your family react to you pulling away from the church and then now mm. writing so honestly about the ways that you are absolutely not following the things that they probably imagined you would learn from going to church every day? I know it was wild. I did a book event in Houston and, and it was, you know, like both of my parents are there, like all these, like a, a surprising number of people from my high school were there. I was like, Oh my God. You know, <laughs> but I, my parents, I will say they, I'm sure, you know, you don't send your kid to Christian school for 12 years and hope that they come out writing 10,000 <laughs> words about how much they love Molly. You know, <laughs> like I think that's just definitely not what they intended. And I think that they would prefer that I was a little more traditional, but they also, I think one of the reasons, I mean, I was so deeply indoctrinated at this place. Like I write in that same essay, there were like Christian bodybuilders that would rip open phone books and sort of scream things about how we could be strong through Jesus. It was so intense. And I think one of the reasons that I was able to live in it and not get too, you know, wrecked by it in any way, you know, just like not, not really like allow my falsehood to be shaped by it, but not controlled by it was that my parents really from a very early age, they treated me like an adult. Basically they were like, you are smart. You're clearly independent. You can, you know, you're in charge of your life to the extent, to whatever extent you can be. And I think I had this sense of space at home. Like the school was such, uh, it almost felt like this sort of kind of, casual imprisonment but at home you know on my own time inside my own head i felt very very free all the time we'll be right back with more that's what she said with sarah spain hiring can be a slow process cafe altura coo dylan miskowitz needed to hire director of coffee for his organic coffee company but he was having trouble finding qualified applicants so he switched to ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you it finds them for you Its technology identifies people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job, so you get qualified candidates fast. Dylan posted his job on ZipRecruiter and said he was impressed by how quickly he had great candidates apply. He also used ZipRecruiter's candidate rating feature to filter his applicants so he could focus on the most relevant ones. And that's how Dylan found his new director of coffee in just a few days. With results like that, it's no wonder four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. See why ZipRecruiter is effective for businesses of all sizes. Try ZipRecruiter for free at our web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash said. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash S-A-I-D. ZipRecruiter.com slash said. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. That's what she said. So you end up going to UVA and, um, I mean, you've, you seem to be a very precocious kid based on your writings about, you know, starting an angel fire website when you were 10, where you had journal entries that were very self, you know, reflective and you were reading a lot and, and you started school at a young age. Uh, when you got to UVA, your time there sounds much more stereotypical than I would imagine, right? You're a cheerleader. You're a sorority girl. Um, yeah. did that feel, 
performative to you or was that natural to you because it was, this is who I was when I was in church life. This is who I was as a teenager in Houston. Now this is what college is supposed to look like. Yeah, I mean, I I did. I ended up having such a textbook. I mean, UVA is like this. I mean, that was kind of my attraction to the school. I had been in such a specific environment that I think I wanted some of that, like, preppy genericism. I wanted wanted brick buildings and white columns and people carrying books around and frat parties. And, you know, this was the early 2000s. So I wanted, like, sundresses and cowboy boots and this sort of preppy vibe. Like, I, I wanted to play beer pong all the time. Like, I wanted just this incredibly standard experience um, or I ended up wanting that. But I think like it didn't, it felt perform ever since I was little, I was aware, I think maybe because of the way I grew up, I was aware of how strongly our environments shape our ideas of ourselves and the way we act because there was just a certain way you had to act in school. And then as, you know, as I wrote in the book, I ended up going on a reality TV show when I was 16. Like I was always drawn to situations that were, that kind of gave you a very prescribed version of your identity. I mean, religion itself is like that. And, um, and so it didn't, and at the same time, I've always, and I think this is part of the reason I like journalism. I have a really genuine interest to experience things firsthand and really live them. You know, like I thought that the Greek system was funny and kind of like, you know, on its face, ridiculous and, you know, very obviously sort of a class sorting system, you know, for people to just get married to other people who were as rich as they were and as pretty. And at the same time, I, you know, I was like, I get it. Like, I get the pleasures. I get the pleasures embedded in a system like this. I get why so many people are drawn to this sort of thing. I get why. And I think that's been an important, that's been something I've naturally leaned into over and over is like understanding that a certain structure might be predictable. It might be really attractive. It might be really repulsive. And I want to experience that all as closely as possible for myself, just as a way of understanding it. Yeah. And that's something that you write about. That's really interesting too, is that, you actually find how you feel about something by writing your way through it. But then by the time you're done, you can't tell whether you actually feel that way or you've just convinced yourself. In the beginning of the book, you write, when I feel confused about something, I write about it until I turn into the person who shows up on paper, a person who is plausibly trustworthy, intuitive, and clear. Um, But you suspect you're fooling yourself. If I were, in fact, the calm person who shows up on paper, why would I always need to hammer out a narrative that gets me there? I find that interesting because I do think that the things that I feel the most comfortable speaking extemporaneously on usually are something I've written a lot about, which means I put in all the work of understanding it and then, you know, putting it into context for people who don't have all of the background. But for you, having all that knowledge because of so much what you write about isn't something that's just like, here's what happened. Let me explain it. It's a question of something or asking about something. Uh, You're left not necessarily feeling any more certain than when you started, but at least the process is what you desire. Yeah, and I think it goes back to that very, like, generous intro you gave me at the beginning. I think this is partly, like, it's always, this is another thing I've been thinking about pretty much ever since I was a kid, which is that, like, basically the only way that I can think and the only way that I can understand the world is writing. But because that's true, and, you know, it's also, as a writer, it's your job to try to make things clear and to make, you know, to to form a narrative that people and you can, can sort of see and see the shape of. And at the same time, you know, if we're ever going to bullshit ourselves, it's going to be through these narrative making processes as well. And I think there was just a period post-election where I, or, you know, and pre-election to, to a large extent, but especially afterwards where I, I got so sick, especially in writing of this sense of certainty that didn't have anything to do with how I felt in everyday life. And I, I feel, you know, when, you know, like you're sitting with friends, you're like having a drink with a friend and you're talking about something that seems like one of these things that kind of determines what it feels like to be alive right now, like climate change or the internet or just the state of capitalism at this advanced stage. And you're sitting and talking about it with your friends and you don't, the the conversation doesn't end in the same way that so much, most writing about these topics, it wraps up really neatly and it's got that movement in it. It's like, well, and well, if we do this thing, then maybe in the end it'll be okay, right? Like it's got this sort of 
there's just this, there was this thing that I kept seeing and everything I was reading. And it was just this false sort of bow at the end of everything. And in right. real life, I felt like we just stare at each other and we're like, yeah, man, what are we going to do? And, and, and that itself is the productive zone, I think, right? Like that's where the, that's where like sitting with things and not needing to understanding that things can be good and bad at the same time. And, you know, kind of really sitting with the discomfort of, something being like a systems being beneficial to you and corrosive to other people or both at the same time. I mean, it's like, I, I just really wanted to try to write a whole book that mimics or mirrored how we actually speak about these things. And I, and I think one of, and one way to get there was really understanding how deep this uncertainty is baked in. There's also like, you know, how when you have, like, as I wrote in the intro, I just generally feel like a really clear, clean um, narrative, you know, usually one is, is almost always one that makes us look good. Right. And that in itself is worth mistrusting. And it's always not trustworthy. Like, you know, when you have that friend that's like, oh, I, you know, I hate drama. And you're like, you love it. <laughs> right. You know? Right. Uh, yeah. Uh, it's, yeah. It's, uh, the, the most strongly held ideas we have about ourselves, I often find very suspicious, right? When someone's like, oh, like I actually am, when someone says I'm the kind of person who blank, I almost always don't believe them. And right. I think that just the harder we have to work to solidify some sort of narrative, maybe the more it is scrutinizing exactly what more worthwhile it is scrutinizing exactly what goes into that narrative to begin with. Yeah, I want to get back to that in a minute, but really quickly, I want to type sort of how you got to where you are. So after UVA, yeah, yeah. you uh, spent a year in the Peace Corps. What drove that decision? Well, I think it was partly, you know, I graduated in 2009 and I was just like, well, I'll never even have a job. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, um, I, I think I, I knew that I wanted to be a writer, but I didn't know or I didn't know that I wanted to be a writer because I had barely articulated that thought to myself because I didn't know anyone who was in the field. I didn't, you know, I couldn't afford to just pack up and move to New York. I, I just, I was like, well, what am I going to do? And so I sort of assumed that I would end up working for a nonprofit or teaching and Peace Corps was kind of a way to do both things. Like I taught English in the Peace Corps. And I'd also like sort of, as you alluded to, I'd finished school early. I graduated when I was 20. So I felt like I had these two extra years and sort of like, why not? Why not try it? Yeah. And your experience there was um, really informative in terms of understanding the privilege you have as an American, but then the ways in which women, especially in other places, are are so... Um, I mean, there was. There, I heard you talking on Fresh Air about it, and it was just yeah. really fascinating to understand how you were. And again, like so much of what you write about and your life experience is like these massive dichotomies. And in one yeah. way, you thought, felt yourself very privileged because at any point you could leave and go back to America or, or quit the Peace Corps. And on the other side, you were in a in a nation and in, in a culture that was very dangerous for women. Yeah, and I and and I also, and it's you know, I was in a very specific environment within that country, you know, like I, I got some slack after that fresh air thing. And it was, you know, like, it's, it's not Kyrgyzstan. There's, there's a lot of wealth disparity. There's like, I was in this tiny little rural village, you know, at the very, the West of the country. It's, it's not the same. If you're a college educated girl, my age in the capital city, your experience would be very different than a, a, you know, someone the same age in a tiny little village. Like that there's a big, it's not like things are all the same for all women in that country at all. But when I was there, it was just, um, it was an education about valences of power being irreconcilable, like you're saying. Like, I had this obscene powerlessness as an American and what often felt like an obscene powerlessness as a woman, um, powerfulness as an American. I don't know if I said that. And, um, and at the same time, it was also, it was also an education in terms of something that I think now coming out in my writing more, which is one of the things that feels kind of emblematic of our moment is that kind of understanding a situation doesn't necessarily allow you to change it. Yeah. And that gap feels like it's getting wider and wider specifically because of the internet. And, you know, like I think just the limits of knowledge and understanding and good intentions are really you know, they really smack you in the face with something like the Peace Corps, which itself is kind of 
an imperialistic project, you know? And I, and I think that, I think that it was there that for the first time that I really got a sense of how fully we're all connected and entrenched within and defined by systems that are so much bigger than our individual actions. And that uh, it was a really good, hard firsthand education in that. Yeah. And that of course only grows as the internet grows and, and we're going to get to that too, because that's the piece that really stood out to me. But um, mm. so you decide to get your MFA at University of Michigan, and you work at Jezebel and Hairpin, two like you know sort of feminist-driven uh, mm-hmm. blog sites. Before you get to the New Yorker, that experience writing for Jezebel, you know, uh, I read in in a story that in the beginning you felt like you were a part of this very thoughtful feminist culture, and then it almost became uh, a repetition of itself, and and became very rote. What was that experience like for you to sort of be a part of something that was very cutting edge and then you felt from within lost that? Oh, I think that was a review. That wasn't my phrasing exactly. Okay. But I, when I got to Jezebel, it was, I mostly, I didn't think of it as, I mean, feminism isn't a, right? Like, as we all know, it's not like a, a uniform. It's not a monolithic thing. And right. I think that what I was drawn to, like there were certainly one of the, one of the freedoms that I feel the most, uh, strongly about making use of is the like I feel very conscious of the fact that I entered the media at a time where feminism because of places like Jezebel and Double X and places like that was becoming an increasingly mainstream perspective and that is basically how I was able to get a job and and this is the milieu in which I worked and because it was becoming mainstream there was necessarily a lot that I that I felt was ready was ripe for critique um and I felt sort of lucky to be in this time where it was already I, the, the ideas that the, the basic idea of feminism was solid. I mean, solidly accepted enough at this point that it was that I felt like there was a lot of room to play and to criticize it from the inside and to kind of work with the understanding that disagreement wasn't going to be fatal to the quote unquote movement, which is, I think, what a sort of idea that was especially prominent on the Internet maybe you know, five or more years ago, this idea that that if people disagreed about feminism, then somehow feminism itself would suffer rather than become stronger, which is what, right. you know, I think it actually happens. Like disagreement is, like dissent is really necessary. So working at Jezebel, it was just, it was also something about another thing that was happening while I was there was that, um, was that I think we've been, we've been increasingly reaching this, the very obvious realization that women's issues aren't special interest, you know, like women are half the population. Like we have always been interested in men's stories because we've had to, and we've always had to look at male characters in movies and in books and sort of understand them as representative of the human experience. It's the same with, with non-white people and white stories. It's like, we're just sort of asked to identify with them and understand this is, you know, the the human condition. And I think the same, like there's a movement, there's a, a, like there's been an undercurrent recently where at Jezebel, I could tell that, you know, I knew that a lot of men were reading the site. I knew that there was, like we really saw it during Me Too, women's voices were just kind of being normalized as central. And by the time I left there, the readership was 50-50 male-female, mm-hmm. which I thought was really interesting because we mostly wrote about women. And I still write about women mostly, but I know that my readership is also, I mean, I, I don't know if it's 50-50, I doubt that, but it's its definitely not all female. And that was something that was interesting for me to play with there, just this question of like, what is women's media supposed to be and what is a, what's the use of a feminist website? And for me, the, the answer to the latter question was often to try to modulate and criticize feminism itself. Yeah, I mean, it is interesting. I feel like that's being mirrored sort of in the Democratic Party right now, this fear of dissent instead of making it um, better. There's a fear of tearing yeah. itself apart. Yeah, yeah. The, the left is always so afraid of dissent, but it's yeah. we shouldn't be. <laughs> um, so you get to The New Yorker, and um, I'm curious, for the most part, are your pitches personal? Are they assignments? How do your stories come about? Mm. I... For the magazine, so I got there and I hadn't, I, like, I didn't know how to re- to write and report, like, a big New Yorker story. That was one of the reasons I was really excited to be there is because I think it's, it's really, it's getting increasingly rare these days for for writers 
like young writers, youngish writers to get that space and get that sort of institutional support time to work on something for a long time. And so for magazine pieces, a lot of the times I am still getting assignments or there's sort of suggestions from my editor that who also just like knows me really well and knows what I want to write about. But for the website, I, I came on kind of officially just to write for the website. And that was something it was mostly just my pitches because I was like, oh, yeah, I know how to blog. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like they were they were trying to get the website to be a little spicier and a little more fun and a little like, you know, they wanted younger voices, et cetera. And I was like, yeah, I can write thousand word blogs. I've been I've been doing this for five years. And so that that was like I felt really lucky because I, I, I was so intimidated like I went from when I worked at Jezebel, you know, I was in the Gawker office. I was like wearing jean shorts and vaping at my desk all day. You know, like it was <laughs> I, it was in, extremely informal. You know, I was like con- like me and my coworkers were just like constantly like it was just I mean, I loved it there so much, but it was not like I was like, oh, shit, I'm at the new like I got to like, do I need to like totally change my personality? And then it turns out that I didn't. And it was, I felt really lucky that I came in at a time when they were wanting the website to get a little friskier or something. Yeah. So um, it's interesting because you talked earlier about being interested in, in like viewing or being a voyeur for this prescribed version of your identity. And it feels like that's sort of a lot of what drives Trick Mirror, um, the sort of looking at a reflection of yourself or a different version of yourself. And that's the reality show, right? And I'd never really thought mm. about the reality show and connecting that to your online persona. But in some ways, they both are you, but a different version of yourself separated from the actual you. And maybe it's something that everybody else digests without getting the other half. Why do you think that's been such a draw for you? Do you tie it all the way back to being a person who is simultaneously in this like heavy church culture while exploring a, a whole second identity outside of it? Well, I, I think maybe what I realized when I watched this reality show, this thing that I filmed in 2004 and then didn't really have the courage to watch until 2017 when I was writing the book was that, and, and, and something that, you know, increasingly makes me that I am a little uncomfortable about with my behavior online. And, and this is something that, like it, blogging is essentially performing a persona constantly too, I feel, um, is that one thing that I realized when I watched the show was that I wasn't a different version of myself. Like I, I seemed exactly like myself and I, the, you know, I think my Instagram, like obviously those pictures are more flattering than, than maybe, you know, like I think I look cute on Instagram and my life looks a little more fun, but it's still like, I think one of the things that scares me about these, about these mechanisms is that they've changed me at a much deeper level than, than this idea that we normally have about the internet, which is like, Oh, like everyone knows the internet isn't real life. Like I think, I think one of the things I'm trying to get like work towards and push right into is that these systems, you know, it's like, like a system of male power and like a, a, a capitalist world, like these, these, these kind of overarching structures that have shaped us. I, they shape us, I think, at a deeper level, or they've certainly shaped me at a, at a level of kind of desire and instinct, you know, um, right. a, a subconscious level more than anything. And that, and that's what I think is really interesting, the fact that it's not like, yeah, the fact that I, I watched the show and it was me when I was 16, you know, doing this sort of real world road rules ridiculous thing in Puerto Rico for a month. And I was like, I'm the same. And that's terrifying. <laughs> you know, like, what does that mean? What does that mean about how quickly I've always taken to these structures of self-surveillance? And I, mean, I think one of the reasons that I've done so many weird things is that I'm, I'm and one of the reasons I like journalism is because I'm really adaptable. Like I feel at home, I feel at home wherever I am, you know, in a lot of ways. And I think in that way, maybe I'm pre-sensitized to understanding how these environments just very quickly have an effect on me and how they have just consistently shaped me. Yeah. And I think more so now than ever, as young people are coming up with social media being a constant, right? Um, people right. my age, I'm about seven or eight years older than you, maybe, maybe nine um, are, we can remember the time that we did not have those things, that second version of ourselves online. And we can try right. to remember that enough to influence how we view current practices. But if you've always had that, you could say over and over again, the internet's not real life. 
But as you write in the book at one point, I think very smartly, um, the worst things about the Internet were now determining rather than reflecting the worst things yeah. about offline life. Like instead of it just being two separate things or the Internet is a bad place, it's that we are so ingrained in it and it's so a part of our life now that it actually affects who we are, the choices we make, who we connect with, why we hate, why we love, why we support things. And um, that sort of, I guess, connection that is no longer really possible for most people to avoid yeah. um, is something that we're right now analyzing. Like we are the first group of people that are able to look at it and think about it and talk about it and see how it's negatively affecting how kids' brains work or uh, mental health or any number of things. Yeah. So it's a fascinating time. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's already, you know, I think the thing that's so, the, the first essay in the book is about the internet. And I think one of the things that's interesting is realizing how fast the social networks, you know, have taken a hold. They haven't, they're really not that, you know, the internet as the social internet has not existed for that long. And already it has completely reshaped politics globally, right? It's, it's reshaped like, yeah, it's, it's, I, I really think reshaped our understanding of civic selfhood. And actually there's, I've been interviewing a lot of teenagers for this piece I'm working on right now. And there's a way in which if you've always, if that's been your whole world, there's a way in which I often feel like young people, very young people see it clearer than I do. Because for them, it's just like the laws of physics, where for me, it was like a, a storm that I saw coming as I was growing up. And that's interesting to me. And increasingly, I find myself, someone asked me in an interview what I, what my subject is, basically, like, what is the thing that runs through all the things I write about? And increasingly, I'm interested in the ways that very, very quickly, I think that we, a lot of us have been able, have been unable to disentangle algorithmic interests from our own interests. And mm -hmm. I, and I think that that's a wild, you know, and that's true if you're an Uber driver, it's true if you're a task rabbit, it's true if you're an Amazon warehouse worker, and it's true for probably for you and me. Right. And I think uh, it's true if you're the president, right. It's almost too big and too banal to even talk about, but I think that that's really interesting, right? The fact that the sort of general movement of our culture and our political societies have been that of serving algorithmic interests. It's really, it's really interesting to me. What do you mean when you say algorithmic interests? Like, you know, it's the... The algorithm, let's say, let's take the Amazon warehouse worker, right? Like the algorithm wants people to, wants the consumer to buy certain things as much as possible, as quickly as possible. And the Amazon worker themselves has to fulfill that. It becomes, fulfilling that requirement becomes their job. If you're an mm. Uber driver, the algorithm wants everyone to go after a 5.0 rating, to be picking up people with, you know, these routes you know, really efficiently, that becomes your literal economic survival mechanism. That, and then, you know, our professional interests, our economic survival, it often gets tied up with what all of these social platforms want, which is retaining as much human attention as possible at all times so that all of our attention and our behavior can be monetized. Right. And what it wants is for us to be on there a lot and to be performing ourselves and to be attracting other people's attention to us so that they'll look longer. And that increasingly becomes, I think a lot of people think that it's, it's, it also becomes our best interest to do that too. And I think that there's a way in which it's already becoming impossible to separate those things. Yeah. I was just uh, talking to my cousin and her daughter, they were getting her ready for college and I had no idea that, first of all, you choose your roommates in college now using, like, a thing almost like Tinder, where you, like, Whoa. can swipe right on people that you're interested in. And if no one picks you, you, like, know that no one really matched with you and you just get Oh, my God, randomly. that's crushing. But, like, <laughs> students are so unhappy now that they want to try to get people who are more like-minded from the beginning uh -huh. so that there aren't, uh -huh. uh, like, completely obvious differences that will pull them apart. Although I'm sure... Sure. Many would argue that that was one of the better things was being forced to adjust and adapt. To yeah, more it's like how do we know what will make people happy? We don't really yeah. know. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, interesting, because that's another podcast I have on is a woman who teaches an entire course about happiness and how we don't understand yeah. how to actually get it. But And then also yeah. like uh, that people are hiring designers for their dorm rooms. 
Because again,、right. when we used to get in our dorm, it would just be like the feeling of nesting, or I'm creating a space for myself, but no one saw it except for people who came over. Now you're going、right. to post all these photos to your Instagram, and everyone in the world's going to see it. So now you have to get a freaking interior designer for your dorm room. Yeah, there was a story in the Times style section recently about how there are all these companies selling sleepover kits. You know, like they'll they'll send you a package. You set up like ten little fairy light teepees for your third grader、oh、or、gosh. whatever. And, of course, and the one thing, and then this keys into the, something I was writing in, about in the other, in another essay, the one about optimization, which is like I think there's the sort of very American idea that everything should always be getting more perfect and efficient and、mm-hmm. you know faster and shinier and, and better, you know, better to look at forever. I think there's something about the surveillance structures of the internet that is making that idea. Like I think the internet takes all of these things that are actually they're good and normal and important, such as us, you know, wanting to do well and us wanting to be liked and us wanting to connect to people. The internet just takes them and, you know, exponentially blows them up to this point of unsustainability and corrosion. And one of those things is I think, like like you were saying with the dorm room, once something is visible, then the optimization idea says it must be improved. Right, like once、mm-hmm. something is there to be looked at, then it must be improved, and there's an and it economic... must be judged because that's what we do. Yeah, when we put something out also... there in life, we're、yeah. not always asking people to tell us whether it's good or bad or they like it. But when we put something on the internet, inherently people are going to judge and comment and decide whether it's good enough. That is what behooves the algorithm, right? It's for right. like they need to have、Engagement. these metrics so that we、right. will, yeah, exactly, so that we will have an incentive to post things. For specifically, you know, gaining an audience and growing that audience, and I'm sure that for college students, it's like, I think that you know, Instagram is effectively paraprofessional for for so many young women, especially because they've all, you know, they've already been socialized their whole life into the idea, the true idea that life will go better for them if people like to look at them. This、right. is certainly something that I learned at a very young age, and. Not wrong, right? Like some some girl who hires a designer for her dorm room and you know gets five thousand more followers over the course of college because of it. Maybe she is more likely to get hired after school, right? It's like these these sort of basic human incentives are getting are becoming economic mandates in a way that is like really mind blowing. Well, like you mentioned, it's like a, if you combine the optimization with America's need to always get better and perfect things with the need to keep up with the Joneses kind of idea,、um, that、yeah. combines to create this like hurricane of everything needing to be you know digested and watched and shown off and、um, yeah. So I'm you know, so glad that when I was in college, my dorm room could just look like shit. You know, I know <laughs> it didn't matter. Like I know,、yeah. I mean, there's a million things I am happy about with college when it comes to yeah, the lack of social media and, no and video cameras yeah, in your、yeah. pocket. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so the story that I first read of yours, where I, you know, the byline stood out to me, and I remembered your name, and I wanted to follow your stuff, was the story you wrote about the worst year ever until next year. Oh,、and、yeah. I'm just going to read a really quick segment. Says there's no limit to the amount of misfortune a person can take in via the internet, and there's no easy way to properly calibrate it. No guidebook for how to expand your heart to accommodate these simultaneous scales of human experience. No way to train your heart to separate the banal from the profound. Our ability to change things is not increasing at the same rate as our ability to know about them. No, 2016 is not the worst year ever, but it's the year I started feeling like the internet would only ever induce the sense of powerlessness that comes when the sphere of what a person can influence remains static, while the sphere of what can influence us seems to expand without limit, allowing no respite at all. That was,、yeah. <laughs> and that still is the way I feel about everything. And there was yeah, a great Michigan Daily review of your book that talked about how. The book doesn't offer answers to the questions about how we can stop these things, but there's something satisfying in hearing someone describe the problem so well. That's exactly how I felt about the story. It didn't make it any easier for me to scroll、yeah. down my Facebook and see a whale whose stomach is full of plastic,、yeah. and then the Amazon、right. on fire, and then a racist、right. comment from a politician, and then、right. a murder somewhere. It didn't make it any easier, but the fact that someone else was able to so. Well, articulate what I'm feeling right now and what I have been feeling for the last couple of years was somehow soothing.、Yeah. And they talk a lot、I'm、about、so、how、glad. women like to discuss things, even if there's no solution. They just feel better getting it out. Whereas sometimes men only want to discuss things if they can find an answer. They feel like a failure if they can't solve it for you. And I don't know、yeah. if it's a male female thing, but your perspective to me 
even though you have zero answers for it, uh, has really yeah. helped me sort of process the last couple of years where it does feel like I, and I'm extremely empathetic, like I'm a deep empath. And so it is really difficult for me to be living in a time where I can be constantly inundated with all the terrible things that happen. And I wonder if you writing yeah. that got you anywhere, like you said, you like to write yeah. through things, or if it's only gotten worse because clearly 2016 was not the worst year ever. Like it's just gotten so right. Worse. It's, and it's just going to get worse. I mean, just, just purely looking at climate. Right. I mean, I think that there are no answers. One of the, like, I think climate again, it's like, so this is, this is the, the sort of issue in which we can understand the limit of individual solutions. Like I think one thing that our world tries really hard to make us do is to experience these things, even these feelings and these moral dilemmas, it wants us to experience these things in isolation. Like it, it, it has this idea that we have to bunker down in our own little survival tube and just run faster so that maybe we'll be okay and somehow outrun these problems crushing us spiritually. Um, but in reality, like there's nothing we can do to outrun these things. There's nothing, you know, and there's, and in reality, we're not, we don't exist in isolation. Like we, we are connected to each other. We are more connected to each other than we, than we feel, you know, cause I think the internet, right. It promised connection, but it really induced isolation yeah. and there's this fake connection and we don't get to feel it the way that we really should. And I think that, you know, I, I definitely have no solutions to anything on an individual level, most of all, because we're all just going to do whatever we want anyway. Like that's what humans do. And there are so many different, like, the different sort of freedoms and incentives that are available to any person at any given moment. It's so specific to them, but you know, there are solutions. They're just collective. They're just policy solutions. And I think in the meantime, all we can do is understand that actually like that, that is sort of all that I've hoped for in writing is to kind of reinstate a sense of true connection. And, and it, even if it is a connection along the things, along the lines of the things that keep us up at night, you know, we're still connected that way. Right. And that like that sort of sense of a shared language, that is sort of all I, all I think we can hope for as a first step because, and, and to, and to really kind of sit with this uncertainty and this feeling, because I think that is what is going to lead us to understanding that the only solutions are large scale and they they, they are going to require us to understand that we're connected with these fears and anxieties. Well, and they require actual action. And that's another flaw of the internet is that it feels very satisfying to post something on the internet about how you feel about any number of social issues or policies, but you're not doing anything. I I will say though, like as much as I agreed with your story, I felt there are ways that we can influence bigger than before. Like the sphere of what a person can influence isn't static because of the connection that the internet allows when you use it correctly, right? We can find out about something. We can start an online GoFundMe and raise more money than we ever imagined we could if we just walked around our neighborhood and asked people to put money in a jar. So um, part of it is actually figuring out how to harness the internet correctly instead of wasting our time on it in those acts of performing or in those moments of, you know, deep, jealousy and FOMO or by not being self-satisfied by posting something and not doing anything. Yeah, I totally agree. Or I think, I mean, and with the GoFundMe thing, right, it's like, it's sort of like the internet offers us the next best thing to the thing we should have, right? Right. Like it is amazing that we can do that. And then it's so amazing that we can do that. And the need for that is growing. So it's increasing, you know, by the minute that for me, it's easy to lose sight of like, oh, like in a healthy society, we should never have a healthcare GoFundMe in the first place, right? And, right, of course. And, and, and like, then plenty of GoFundMe's are scams, and then they steal it from right, the exactly. homeless person that they're claiming to raise money for, right? It's like totally, everything totally. sucks all the time, but you have to fight through. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, the Internet, like, I mean, there's so many things that, like, there is, uh, in terms of police brutality, right, like, there there are so many things that technology has made visible that wouldn't right. be visible before, and I never want to die. And, you know, all of, you know, the Me Too upswinging and, and Right, the removal of sort of like the guardians of every publication, allowing voices that otherwise wouldn't be elevated. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, that part, like, yeah, that part's great. So I have to ask, how did you allow yourself 
to be a writer who writes about big picture things and admit that you haven't figured it out or admit that you don't have a solution. Because like you said before, usually, especially after someone has put time and effort into the the research and everything, they want to tie a bow on it at the end so that you feel satisfied when you're done instead of despondent. And you're kind of like, sorry, I don't have a, I don't have a bow for you. We're. Yeah. Well, you know, there was there, I never even considered trying to tie it up, you know, I've been trying to, in my own, in my writing, just in general, in my daily, like in my work for The New Yorker, when I was working at Jezebel, I've been trying to just be in in the process of trying to be really honest um, and trying to be really clear. There was just for years, it's been a long time. I, since I, I can't think of the last time I really felt the need to put a conclusion on anything because I try to write in a way that is honest to what I actually think about things and how I think one of the things that frustrates me about the internet is that, you know, like, you know, people that are really annoying on the internet, but actually really chill in real life. It's yeah. like, don't let the internet distort you. You know, right. don't let the internet make you think that your opinion is more important than it is. Don't let the internet make you feel like you have to stand as a representative of something instead of being part of the thing itself. Like it, I think that the internet, I was like, I, if I'm going to have to be writing on the internet for the rest of my foreseeable life, I want it to at least be true to how it feels to be a person in the real world. And that feels like uncertainty and often despondence and, and whatever little flares of hope we can find in that. And so, yeah, I never, I never, you know, I think that one of the, like maybe it is, if there is like a, it might be a gender socialization to like, I have never been interested in the sort of like fake objectivity that so many male essayists, project on the page, this fake objectivity and this really kind of, for me, unbearable certainty, which to me seems like a form of self-delusion. And I just, I find that kind of aesthetically annoying as a reader. And I guess, yeah, I I think it's, it is indicative of the freedoms that are available to us that I didn't have to, you know, I could still publish this book and no one was going to really ask me to fake a conclusion I mean, I did have to argue pretty strongly for it, but I think I made a pretty good argument for it just in the actual writing. It's like you don't like it's it might be worth it to try stopping right here, you know, and just seeing what what that's like. (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting to see how that changes over the course of of different topics, right? Drugs and celebrity culture, weddings, religion, um, the Internet and how even in finding that there are no solutions we become at least aware of the problems and sometimes at least naming it um, gets us started into conversations that, like you said, connect us about shared experience and also perhaps move us to make the bigger decisions that are required to actually affect change uh, by just sitting in bubbles alone, crying ourselves to sleep about all of the terrible things. Uh, We're not accomplishing anything but it, it sometimes feels better to avoid than to engage in some of the very worst of what's going on. Well, yeah, that's what I was, I think, in the back of my mind hoping for. Well, it's a fascinating book, and I I love your stories. And that worst year ever, I've talked about on this podcast a a ton, and I don't know why it just stuck with me in the sense that it was so glad to be understood when I think to myself, like, I can't keep digesting all this stuff. I have nowhere to put. And then in the end, what will happen is I'll just be like, I'm just going to give a bunch of money to charities today. Like, that's what happens. It's like, I'm like, I have to do anything so that at the end of this, awful thing where I just scrolled and all of a sudden it was too much for me. And I don't know why today it was too much. And yesterday I could handle it, but today it's too much. And I have to do anything I can to make it better. And that's a terrible feeling of, of, of helplessness as you are able to digest all these terrible things. But, and I think like, wouldn't it be so nice if we could just look at the story of the whale dying, you know, with like 400 pounds of plastic in its stomach and know that we had a government that had, that we had done something hard lines, yeah, that right. we like really, you know, and, and it's like, it, it's, it often feels like that's impossible, but you know, I always just try to remember it's like, it is, it could be possible for us to pursue happiness without always feeling like if we're lucky, we're benefiting, you know, from, from terrible systems, right? Like I try to remember, like there is, you know, we have got so much money in America. We, we could, we could make it so that nobody is dying because they, their GoFundMe didn't get funded. Like it's, right. Like it's like this, this sort of sense of this low level thing that's creeping in on all of us. We, we could live in a world that doesn't, 
that's not like that. And I, I just always try to remember because it's, it is so consistently the feeling I have when I look at the internet and I, I'm just always trying to remember like, yeah, it, it is possible. It is, it's still possible. Well, and also, you know, I'm always worried for my friends with kids about like, oh my gosh, how do you raise kids during this internet? Yeah. Know, with all of what's going on. And someone once said, you know, your parents were thinking about that about AOL instant messenger rooms and their parents were thinking it about telephones and their parents, were, you know, and there's always going to be that thing. And so trying to remember the variety of awful things that we have come up with policies to make better uh, seatbelts, yeah. right? There's a, there's any number yeah, of things yeah, that totally. like we just take for granted that exist because there was a problem. And I'm sure when that problem was going on, everyone was looking around saying, why can't we fix this? We must do something. It just takes time. And that's, I think, the frustrating part is we want people who are in power to act quicker on the things that we can all see right in front of us. And that feeling of helplessness when they don't becomes so overwhelming. But I do think that there is a groundswell that's available now that wasn't before because of the Internet. Again, this double-sided, you know, thing that, like, yeah. you know, you can actually create change from a loud group of voices that previously might not have been heard. So there's yeah, that, I guess. Totally. I don't want to yeah. tie a bow on this podcast, but <laughs> no, 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 no. There's always that, and I mean, and that's you know, like that is basically the reason that I pro- I don't know if I would have a job if not for that swell of energy. Like it's 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 real, and I'm and it's it's I'm grateful for it. Well, I'm grateful for your writing. And before I let you go, you have to do the one thing that everybody does, but nobody expects. Didn't expect a kind yeah. of Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. It's from Monty Python. It's before your time. Uh, question yeah. number one. What's your Desert Island album? You can only have one. Ooh, ooh. You know, whenever I think about this, I often want to say I don't want an album so that I don't have to ruin my favorite album, you know? <laughs> yes, yes, that's <laughs> like, good. Like I, I, I almost want to say that's my answer because... Like the, the only thing that would be worse than being stuck on a desert island with only one album is to ruin your favorite album because you listen to it while you died. <laughs> but is that really worse than no music at all? Uh, I don't know. You're right. I guess I would want to pick something super long. I mean, honestly, I would pick like Bitches Brew. Like I would pick like Miles Davis. I would pick something that yeah. that that has already stood the test of time rather yes. than like a recent. And maybe without like lyrics like that, that will become, you know, the only yeah, thing. Exactly. You, yeah. Exactly. Uh, That'll become like yeah. my volleyball that I talk to. Yeah. yeah like, cause like currently every night when I go to sleep, I just sing in my head the lyrics to Truth Hurts by Lizzo, which I'm obsessed with. Yeah. But I cannot yeah, yeah, go yeah. to sleep without singing it. Like, I don't play tag, bitch, I've been it. And I'm like, I gotta go to sleep. Yeah, yeah. Get out of my head. Right. And, and you, you would just say, like, right. I, I can't be saying that for 10 years straight. Yes, yeah. Exactly. Uh, number two, what habit or quality do you think has contributed most to your success? Mm, I, well, it's related to my dilemma that I said at the beginning of the podcast. Like I, I like work. I'm a workhorse. Like I liked waiting tables. I like, I just like to work. Yeah. It's a good one. Number three, what would you consider your biggest failure? My biggest failure, I would say it is leaving the Peace Corps early. Hmm. Even if it wasn't the right place to be for you? Yeah, because, you know, I'm, I'm always like, I have a really, I'm sure you're the same, like, I have a really monstrous force of will. Like, I, yeah. I am, there is just nothing. I, like, don't give up on things. I do things. Like, I, I have a, like, I pride myself on having, like, a perfect follow-through rate, you know? Like, I, right. I, if I say I'm going to do something, I'm going to, I'm going to do it, you know? Yeah. And that was the first time that I really couldn't, and that was instructive, but also, you know, like, humbling in the true way of humbling, you know, not in the, like, I'm so humbled to receive this award way. Like, it was humbling. Right. Right, for sure. Uh, I've actually done a podcast on that, too, because people misuse oh, the word humble, that, yeah. and it really annoys me. So uh, yeah, number four, have you ever been in a fist fight? I have never been in a fist fight, but I got in a really intense slap fight in gymnastics in elementary <laughs> school with my friend Heather. We were in a bathroom changing, and we just got super mad at each other and just started, you know, real sort of leotard slap fight, hair pulling kind of thing. <laughs> That's great. Uh, number five, if you could switch lives with anyone for one day, who would it be? Oh, definitely Beyonce. <laughs> so that's like my number one. Answer. It's like Beyonce yeah, or course. Michelle like, or Barack Obama. It's pretty much. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> like, yeah, like Michelle or Barack Obama when they're on vacation. Like, exactly. like for sure. I just want to know what it's like to be in her body, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Just to be, just to be that. Yeah. That'd be pretty. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, number six, what's the most embarrassed you've ever been? <laughs> oh God. Um, oh, where, where to even begin? <laughs> I feel like I'm embarrassed every moment of being alive. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, let's 
see. I once in elementary school, we were playing mat ball. Like, you know, we play mat ball, like where the bases are just those big mats and you can pile a bunch of people onto them. Sure. We we're playing mat ball. And I was like in second grade and I just puked <laughs> while oh I was running from bases to bases. And then oh, no. we were playing like with, we were playing with two gyms put together. So it was a really long run to, to home and I was just being covered in vomit. Uh, <laughs> oh no, that is, that I'm is sure, I'm sure honestly I've had worse, but that was, that was bad. That, that, that stands bad. out. Uh, number seven, what's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve? I am very careless and like not in my work, but in my life. Like, and I think this, I, I think that our best and worst qualities are connected. And this is something that I think about a lot. And I'm pretty like, you know, all this whole conversation aside, I'm a pretty carefree person. Like it's, it's hard to, like, I tend to have a good time and I'm pretty easygoing. And as a result, I think I am also, you know, as a result of being, trying not to care about things too much, you know, any more than you need to in my personal life. I am extremely careless. Like I will, like I lose my keys all the time because I'm just like, oh, whatever, you know, (laughs) (laughs) trying to be a little more careful. Yeah, that's interesting. It's interesting to have so much in one space and then lose it when you're not at that, you know, in that work mode. Um, Yeah, exactly. If you could play commissioner of life for a day, what one rule would you enforce that all of society would have to adhere to? Hmm. I have been thinking a lot about like maybe just like don't be annoying on the internet. Like if everyone just had to try it for one day, like don't just don't be annoying. Like what would it be like? I think it'd be good. Yeah. I've tried to start engaging people when they're assholes to me by just being like the way that I would be in person. Like yesterday, yeah. someone had a really big attitude to me about something I said about two quarterbacks. And I just wrote back and I looked at his bio and he worked at like a St- Stephen Sondheim theater. And I was like, I was like, I'm kind of curious, like, what's up with the attitude? Also, I love Sondheim. I went to his birthday thing at the Hollywood Bowl. It was so cool. And he wrote back yeah. and he was like, yeah, I don't really know. I'm so sorry. I think I'm just like annoyed because my team sucks. And I'm like, okay, cool. Yeah. yeah, that's that's frustrating. And I was like, I got to just start doing that more often because people don't even realize that they are trying to completely change the rules of engagement online from what we've accepted yeah. as a society when we interact with each other. And sometimes they just needed to be reminded, like, hey, you're being yeah. an asshole. Is there any reason for that? And then sometimes they just stay that way. A lot of the time they just stay that way. Yeah. But sometimes they're like, sure. oh, yeah, my bad. <laughs> well, and it's also right. If, if these people would, you know, as I know, you've like done that whole video. on like, people wouldn't, people wouldn't do these things in person. And yeah. so it's, yeah, I like, yeah, if everyone had to act the same on the internet as they did in real life for a day, what would that be like? That would be amazing. I would love to see yeah. that. Um, number nine, what's the most scared you've ever been? Hmm. Um, let's see. What's the most scared I've ever been? It's like, honestly, probably some time that I was, like, it's definitely some time that I was in college and I was like, you know, hitting a four foot tall bong every three hours. And, you know, I just probably randomly decided that my AC was trying to kill me or something, you know, like it was definitely something really, really stupid. (laughs) That's great. Um, Number 10, what three words would you most hope that people would use to describe you? Oh, um, I think I would want people like, Whatever, whatever quality it is that is a good friend. Like, I think that's the thing that I most want to be. Um, like, so as a good friend and as, I don't know, maybe like, yeah, these are, none of these are good words. Like I, I I want (laughs) to be a good friend and I want to be fun to be around and I want to be like, I want to be maybe perceptive, let's say. Okay. I like those. Those are good. That wasn't yeah. three words, but you're allowed because you're a writer. Yeah. <laughs> and so your whole job is to, you know, I know. I, I should, well, actually, because I'm a writer, I probably should have been able to think of three words, but yeah. <laughs> and then finally, the bonus question, who would you recommend I have on this podcast? Um, it can be anyone from any job or industry, just anyone who I would find interesting. Oh, that's a really good question. I, I have been, so the book that I've been talking about all summer is Jenny O'Dell's How to Do Nothing. Um, and she, like that book in terms of thinking about the internet and in terms of thinking about how to rearrange certain like deep internal priorities, like that book really, it really did a number on me. Um, and I've been thinking about it like nonstop since the spring. Okay. Um, I'm fascinated by that. It sounds really good. How to resist the attention economy. Yeah. Yeah. It's really good. 
I'm into it. Um, thank you so much. This was so interesting. I'm going to have to have you back because there's so much else I wanted to get into. But, um, yeah, this was great. Thanks so much. Thank you so much, Sarah. It was so good to talk to you. That's what she said. Be sure to check out another great ESPN podcast, Laughter Permitted with Julie Foudy. Season one's available now. Season two's going to debut on October 9th. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's what she said. It's time once again for South Bitch Sessions, where I rant about something that bothers me and I fix it. This week, baseball. How the hell does a team in a dogged fight for a wild card spot, possibly even the division title, lose two of three to a team that's already been eliminated, won't finish above 500, and is playing for nothing more than pride? Why? And then, when you do that, and you go on to play a good team, say a team that's, I don't know, ahead of you in the standings, you've left no room for error. One day if I snap, it's probably going to be about this. Why is baseball so unpredictable? Why can't the team with the most talent win? Why can't the better team with more to play for who, I don't know, maybe, possibly, obviously, I root for, win when they need to against garbage-ass teams so that they aren't sunk when they go on to lose to good teams? All right, I feel good about what we accomplished today. Baseball teams, all of you, any team, any team within earshot, Maybe, possibly, obviously, a certain team, which happens to reside on the north side of Chicago, win the games you're supposed to freaking win so that when you face teams that are better than you or as good as you and you lose, it's not as big of a deal. There. I fixed it. If you like That's What She Said with Sarah Spain, you'll probably like my nightly radio show, Spain and Company. If you can't catch it live, 6 to 9 p.m. Eastern on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, and Sirius XM Channel 80, you can always listen to select segments that are posted to the Twitter feed. Follow at Spain and Company. If you've got a dilemma for the commission to fix, tweet it to me at Sarah Spain or go to iTunes or podcast app. Subscribe to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. Rate, review, and leave the dilemma in your review. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. Well, that's what she said. <laughs> <laughs>